And eventually uh, the pus was pouring out of this abscess, so much so they had to change his clothing any number of times a day. He was embarrassed, uh, really could not get around, both from the discomfort and just the, the fact that he smelled from the pus draining out of his anus. So eventually he calls in the surgeon, the royal surgeon, a gentleman by the name of Felix. And uh, Felix says to him, hey, listen, um, King Louis, uh, I've never done this operation. I wouldn't even know where to begin, but we'll give it a shot. The surgeon then takes people from Paris and from other areas of France, puts them in the hospitals with the same condition and starts operating on them. Now, how many died and how many survived, how many had good results, I couldn't begin to tell you. But the bottom line is, after about six, seven months, he then calls his friend, the king, and says, guess what? I know how to do the operation now. Welcome to Pure Spectrum, where we journey through medicine's overlooked and unexplored corners. Experience what it's like practicing medicine on the International Space Station, operating on an NFL Super Bowl quarterback, treating remote patients in Antarctica, or flying over the burning reactor at Chernobyl. Ride along with a former Navy SEAL physician embedded with elite Delta Force commandos. Meet renowned physicians, economists, researchers, and journalists deconstructing subjects as diverse as psychedelics, meditation, science crowdfunding, artificial intelligence, architecture, and more. Join orthopedic surgeon Dr. Keith Mankin, Colin Miller, and our growing tribe as we explore medicine en route. All right, welcome back. Today we're exploring the history of surgery, taking a speedy but deliberate journey from prehistoric brain surgery to our modern high-tech operating suites. As Rudyard Kipling once pointed out, quote, if history were taught in the form of stories, it would never be forgotten, unquote. And this episode is all about the stories, stories about heroes, risk-takers, and the gruesome reality that preceded all of the medical and surgical advances we take for granted today. We're joined by general surgeon and medical historian Dr. Ira Rutko. Ira is the author of eight books, including his most recent, Empire of the Scalpel, which we'll be covering today. This episode was a blast, especially for Keith and I, who used to spend a lot of time in the OR together. We hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. With that said, let's get started. Ira, welcome to the show. It's Friday morning, and uh, we're excited to have you. Well, thank you for inviting me. So, we're going to go all over the place with this book you wrote, and we're just going to start at a random place. We're going to talk about King Louis the Fourteenth in France. Um, this is, you know, this is a story not for the squeamish, but I think most people listening can can handle it. So tell us, tell us what happened here, the injury, and what was going I wrote on. Empire of the Scalpel, and I said in the very beginning that I'm a surgical raconteur, that I enjoy telling stories about surgery and about surgeons. So. One of the stories I used was uh, King Louis XIV, the Sun King uh, of France. He had, at the time, the beginnings of an abscess, a collection of pus near his um, anus. And it was really bothering him. And he didn't know what was going on, other than the fact that the abscess was getting larger and larger and larger. And so he called in the royal physician, and the royal physicians did this, that, and the next thing. Of course, whatever they did including putting incest in there, incense and other things, nothing helped. And eventually uh, the pus was pouring out of this abscess, so much so they had to change his clothing any number of times a day. He was embarrassed, uh, really could not get around, both from the discomfort and just the, the fact that he smelled from the pus draining out of his anus. So eventually he calls in the surgeon, the royal surgeon, gentleman by the name of Felix. And uh, Felix says to him, hey, listen, um, King Louis, uh, I've never done this operation. I wouldn't even know where to begin, but we'll give it a shot. So this is like about 500 years ago. And um, the surgeon then takes people from Paris and from other areas of France, puts them in the hospitals with the same condition and starts operating on them. Now, how many died and how many survived, how many had good results, I couldn't begin to tell you. But the bottom line is, after about six, seven months, he then calls his friend, the king, and says, guess what? I know how to do the operation now. Okay, that's fine. So not only did he learn how to do the operation, but he invented instruments. So he invented a um, scalpel that you could put inside the anus to cut whatever he was going to cut. And also he invented a... Um, speculum, something that allows you to see inside. Those things still exist. They're in a museum in France. So on the appointed day, they take King Louis into his bedroom, him along with uh, a, 
a coterie of physicians and other surgeons and uh, men and ladies and waiting. His mistress is in the room. They put him on his abdomen. They flip him over. Uh, two of his men in waiting hold his buttocks apart and they proceed to find that he has what's called an anal fistula. An anal fistula, simply put, is an opening that starts inside your anus. Um, there are various reasons why it starts, probably poor hygiene in his particular, and obesity in his part. And um, it comes out right neck, the, the opening of the abscess um, continue, continues, it gets larger and larger, and the abscess opens in the skin just by the anal verge. So they, the, this guy Felix says, all right, well, I know what to do. I've got to stick a probe into the anus or the speculum. I've got to find the opening inside the anus. I know where the opening is on the outside. And so he does that. He sticks a probe. He sticks the speculum in. Now, again, you understand something. There's no electricity. There's no lights. He's doing all this using a candle. That's all that he's saying. And with an audience, with an audience. And the king is going, Mandu, you know, oh, my God, this is killing me, whatever. And uh, after about an hour, he finds the holes, both uh, the beginning and the end of the holes inside the anus and outside by the skin. He sticks this new device, the scalpel that he invented, sticks it in. And with one stroke, cuts open the uh, necrotic tissue that is making up this um, canal or this abscess. He then opens up this entire area. He puts whatever dressings they used back, back then, probably perfume and other things. And believe it or not, the king eventually, I use the word eventually because he undergoes this about two or three more times, he eventually gets better. Um, this was done, I believe, in October and November. And by the end of January, he's fine. He's back on his feet. And believe it or not, was cured permanently. Now, the reason why that was important was uh, King Louis XIV, he had great faith in his surgeons. And once this was done and he was cured, he then said the surgeons are great. They can start um, dissecting human beings, which was important for them to understand human anatomy. He allowed them to build a surgical amphitheater in Paris and things went from there. Amazing. Yeah, when I read that, he, you know, he said, my God, a couple of times. And yes. you got to wonder, you know, if he was screaming and yelling like a three-year-old who doesn't get her cupcake for breakfast, like mine did this morning, <laughs> I'm not sure anybody would have been brave enough to report that about the king. Oh yeah, he bore well. Exactly. He I'm not sure that anybody would yell, would report uh, that the king was writhing on the table and moving all around <laughs> and basically, you know, suffering. Um, but all surgery before the beginnings of anesthesia and antisepsis, which is really the mid to late 19th century the patients suffered an ordeal that you and I can't imagine. Yeah. Well, it's Felix, right? Felix is a brave guy because if this hadn't gone well, he'd be in all trouble, surgeons, right? All surgeons back then were brave guys because if it didn't go well, I can't imagine what would have happened to him. But let's put it this way. I'm glad it went well. I wouldn't want to be the one who was operating where it didn't go well. And, you know, at the beginning of the book, at the beginning of Empire, I write about Hammurabi. I mean, this is like 4,000 years ago. And Hammurabi and his cold, um, you know, from the Middle East, he wrote at the time that if a surgeon operates and he does this, I forget exactly what it was, but they lose an arm or they lose an eye or something bad, that that surgeon in turn gets to lose his eye or his hand. Yeah, we're worried about tort reform these days, but uh, that's was, was was pretty it tough. Was dangerous, <laughs> it was a dangerous profession so uh, for the surgeon and for the patients. Right. So one of the themes through the book is uh, education of surgery too, and, and sort of uh, making sure that surgeons are teaching uh, proper technique. Um, with with uh, Felix's case, um, obviously there was a whole run now. The king had it, so I should have it too. Was he teaching this procedure or was he just uh, holding it for himself? Did he try to mass produce these instruments in any way? Uh, the mass product, don't forget, these instruments were all handmade. Right, I know. So, and, and by it, mass it, production, I mean, did, were there others made for? I read comments about how the fact that um, people from all over Europe started pouring into Paris to get a similar operation, often when they didn't even have an right. anal fissure. They would still come because the king had it. Well, I got to have it. I'm assuming that other surgeons were doing the operation. Okay. How many and you know how well, I can't tell you. 
But yes, people, I read the comment that people came to Paris to get operated on like the king did. So yeah, the surgeon, whether it was actually Felix showing them, I can't tell you. All right, we're going to take a giant leap back in time. And I know there's, there's still a lot of mystery about this, but it's, it's, it's kind of mesmerizing to think about. You know, we go back to the prehistoric times and we find these fossil records. And it does kind of, look, you look at some of these pictures, it kind of looks like a, a burr hole, a real craniotomy. Yeah. And this is not just in one area. We've seen this in many areas around the world. Ira, tell us what we know about this. I, I mean, we don't know a lot, but it's, it, it's interesting to think about. So this is a question that I'm frequently asked is, when did surgery begin? When, when, when was the first operation? Well, in truth, the first operation was done by uh, cavemen and cavewomen. So let me explain. They have found numerous, I mean, hundreds, if not thousands of skulls that are upwards of 5,000 to 10,000 years old, that when you hold the skull, you see there's a hole in the actual skull. That part of the skull bone has been removed. Now, why do we know it's been removed? Is because there are curvilinear grooves in the bone, um, cross-hatching, where you, know, you make a square and the middle part of the square you're able to lift out. So clearly, they were doing operation, at least what you and I would call an operation, um, crudely, but it was being done. Now, why were these being done, these trephinations by cave individuals? Well, I would imagine for two reasons. One, if you can think about it, if you had an individual who was clubbed on the head or was out hunting and suffered a cranial injury and was comatose, but had a dent in his skull and the patient basically looks dead or is almost dead, something has to be done. So the shaman, be it a woman or a man, then proceeds to take out that portion of the skull that's indented by doing this technique. They would use a flint stone or other type of stone. Um, they would have to cut away the hair. How they did that, I don't know, because they didn't have scissors, obviously. But they would remove this little section of the skull. That's called the trephination. When they did that, if you can picture this, you have somebody who's dead. At least they think he's dead or he or she is dead. They remove that skull. They remove a blood clot that's formed on top of the brain that's causing the coma sort of akin to what we think about today as a subdural or, or a hematoma on the brain. And you know, hours later, if not days later, this individual wakes up. Now just think about it, if you're a shaman and you just raised this person from the dead, think the impact on that psychologically on the tribes people who surround you. So not only were they doing it probably for an injury, but also for people who have mental illness. Clearly, there were individuals with mental illness, you know, whatever it was, schizophrenia or whatever. They would try to remove a section of the skull. Now, how do we know that this worked? It's a very simple answer. How do we know that trephination worked? And the reason is this. To remove a section of the skull when somebody's had a traumatic injury, there's always jagged edges. When you break your bone, there are always jagged edges. No one breaks their bone as if they've been uh, amputated with a knife. There's jagged edges there. Those jagged edges hurt. Um, they have to be taken care of. So if you have jagged edges and the patient were to die and they had removed this section, new bone is, it, I, I'm gonna use the word smooth. It forms edges, but not jagged edges. So the new bone would grow and we would see that in these skulls, new bone growth, which meant only one thing, that that individual who went, underwent a trephination survived. Now, how long they survived? You know, bone doesn't grow fast. It takes a while for bone to grow. So whether they survived a month or, you know, one year or two years, they survived. So that is the instance of the um, first operation. And I tell everybody that everything has a beginning from which um, life starts, a birth. You know, it's the old phrase, all great journeys begin with a single step. I really believe that um, the story of modern surgery emerges from the cave individuals. And what do I mean by that? That much like our DNA that we get from our parents, our grandparents exists inside us. I firmly believe that that cave individual's DNA their daring do, their skills, their wanting to get things done, 
the going at it alone, that vestiges of that cave individual's DNA exist in every modern surgeon's body. I, it sounds crazy, but I think vestiges of it do exist. Well, it's not crazy at all. I mean, so for everything surgeon, they were is passed off to us. It's, yeah, so for a surgeon, that's the, our, you know, it's the Big Bang. It's like the universe. The Big Bang for surgery probably began with the cave individuals and doing trephination. You know, I, I don't, you know, ethically, I don't know if it, anyone would agree to use a cadaver in this way, but I wonder if anyone's ever tried using old flint rocks and things to see how hard it would have been to do something like this. I don't oh, know. I'm sure people have tried it. Yeah. I, I don't know, but <laughs> I would say this. Not only did you have to have a brave surgeon and a courageous shaman, surgeon, whatever you want to call him, but you also had to have a very brave and courageous individual not if they were comatose because they had no idea what was going on. But if that patient were alive, I mean, um, um, not comatose. Alert. They know what's going on. Uh, think about it. You're getting your brain. It's a lot. So, yes. I, I can't imagine it, actually. I, I, I can't imagine sitting there. and having Yes, but these, these skulls are all over the place. You know, at yeah. first they discovered them in Europe. But now they're all over, whether it's Siberia they've discovered in. Down in South America, Inca skulls, they all have holes in their skull. And all, not all of them, but, you know, many of them have new bone growth, which meant that those individuals survived. Yeah, and they came to this independently, you know, that, that's, that's amazing right. too. Yes. It's incredible. Okay, so, we, we could, you know, we could spend hours and hours going through a lot of history here. But um, oh, yeah. one important point you made, you, you said up front, you're going to focus mostly on the Western development mm -hmm. of medicine and surgery. But there's real reasons for that, not just because it's, you know, your editor told you you had to or, you know, yes. time constraints. But th this just didn't develop in the same way, particularly in China and Japan. Tell us why. Um, the, amongst the various reasons I wrote the book and, and the um, parameters I used for writing the book was global surgery as we know it today, surgery throughout this planet began in Europe. It then transferred to America and then transferred to the world. Now, what do I mean? The beginnings of surgery, you know, whether it's cave individuals or not, I don't, you know, that could be South America or whatever, but the actual modernization of surgery, starting with Hammurabi, going into the Renaissance and the Middle Ages and coming into the, into the modern world with anesthesia and antisepsis was really a European um, fact. It, it just happened in, in Europe. That's where it occurred. Now, why didn't it happen in Asia, um, in Japan and India and um, China? It's not as if they weren't doing surgery or trying. They did, but they really, they did not dissect human cadavers. So they had no knowledge of human anatomy well until the 19th century. So that, yes, they were doing surgery. In India, they had fantastic plastic surgeons who learned how to replace the nose when the nose had been chopped off by a sword or something. They knew how to do that. They knew how to do that. But those are just individual instances of where surgery um, advanced. The overall advance of surgery, and I'm very careful to write about this, first in Europe, and then starting after World War I, um, comes to the United States because of the war and the economics. Um, as our, as our socioeconomic position grew in the world, we then took over leadership in surgery. And now it's, it's just globalized. You know, it, it took a little while, even in, in Western Europe and, of course, the United States, to see the kind of, you know, growth curve that we have today in, in, in innovation. But we look back at, and you talked about people like Galen and Aristotle, these ideas you know, we didn't have the scientific method then. We didn't test hypotheses. We, you know, it was different. So you, you, you can't fault people. You have to think of, we talked about this before we started recording. You have to think about people in the context of their times. But this is kind of a funny quote. I, I had to look it up. I don't think you put it in your book, but this is uh, Bertrand Russell. So he says, quote, Aristotle maintained that women have fewer teeth than men. Although he was twice married, it never occurred to him to verify the statement by examining his wives' mouths, unquote. And, you know, he's poking a little fun at it, but it is, you know, it's interesting, you know, why, you know, he thought men, I think, believe have more teeth than women, but never thought to just open the mouth and count. 
or even so get let, let me give you some examples yeah um, and and it really concerns this individual galen who was uh he was roman a roman i, I don't want to just call him a surgeon because he was both a physician and a surgeon but he was very active he wrote a lot he did most of the writing in that era and um he wanted to understand human anatomy except that there was one problem they did not uh, dissect human cadavers back then they were not allowed so what Galen did was to dissect apes and other animals, pigs, chick, whatever it is, doesn't matter, but he was using animal anatomy and, and, and using it as an allergy for human anatomy. Now, obviously that can't work, but Galen was such a powerful force that for 1500 years, so let's say Galen was somewhere, I forget his exact years, but it was just um, about 1500 years ago. For 1500 years, well into the Renaissance, Galen, his concepts and his ideas held sway. So you're looking at surgeons who are trying to operate. Again, let's not apply our modern idea of what surgery is, but look at it back then. And they're looking at chicken anatomy and trying to figure out why the chicken or the ape anatomy just isn't coinciding with um, things. I remember at one point, some surgeons said, oh, well, the anatomy must have changed since the time of Galen. I mean, the anatomy didn't change. The point is that there were false beliefs, and these false beliefs held things back. Conversely, it's very, very important to understand what I call frames of reference. Frames of reference you can apply to almost anything. And the frame of reference for history of surgery is that what's going on at a particular time whether it was using Galen's um, lack of knowledge of human anatomy or Hippocrates and the concept of humoral flows throughout the body that are causing um, illness. These ideas at the time were state of the art. Now we can look back and say, hey, come on. It was barbaric, it was um, gross, it was horrible, it was maltreatment. It was scary. Yes, you can apply any adjective you want. I don't do whatever you want. But what I want people to understand from this book is that it was state of the art at the time. Just like I would feel, I, I would not want somebody 200 years from now, when none of us are around, coming back and saying, boy, what were they doing? Can you imagine? They, they told people uh, not to go out in the sun, to go out into the sun, to drink milk, to live by electric wires, to use the cell phones with the transmitters by their head. Why were they doing that? That was crazy. It was causing illness. The point is that there are frames of reference. What we're doing today is state of the art that we're doing as best as we can, trying our best and hoping to bring patients the best treatment. Is it where it will be 200 years from now? Of course not, of course not. But keep that in mind, frames of reference at all times when you talk about the history of medical care. So you think about the sticking power some of these ideas had, because they did last a long time. Um, you know, the, 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 the resistance to dissecting a human cadaver. Have you thought much about why that stigma existed? I mean, uh, I think most of it probably at the beginning was spiritual. They were afraid to open up the body. And then eventually the spiritual got overtaken by the religious and up to um, the time of Vesalius. Well, let's talk about Vesalius. Yeah. Let's talk about the four elements of a surgical operation. I mean, what makes a surgical operation safe and effective? I mean, what, what, how is the surgeon able to operate? How can you do that? Well, there are four what I call fundamental foundational elements. The first is understanding anatomy. If the surgeon doesn't have a roadmap, he's, he or she is going nowhere. They have nowhere. They don't understand what they're cutting. At the same time, you have to be able to control bleeding. If you can't control bleeding, you can't see the roadmap. It's a flood. So you can't go anywhere. Well, anatomy first came to be understood for real in the 16th century, in the 1500s, 1400s, by a guy by the name of Vesalius, Andreas Vesalius. He wrote the first true textbook of anatomy. At the same time, 
there was another individual, his name was Pere, he learned how to control bleeding. So by the 16th century, we're, we have a, anatomy, we have bleeding, but there's only one problem. There's no anesthesia and there's no antisepsis. So they were operating on patients that they had to literally hold down who were writhing on the table. And at the same time, when they would operate on somebody, and again, when we say operate, it's not in the modern world. The idea of an operation back then was an amputation. It was looking at something that you could see on the skin and removing it, a tumor. They had no idea about operating on the inside of the abdomen or the chest. It, it didn't exist. So if they would do an amputation on somebody, let's say amputate the thigh, that patient would then have an infection and die from the infection because nobody understood about washing the hands or about bacteria and all. So let's go forward about 400 years. It took 400 years before anesthesia and antisepsis comes into play. So we have anatomy, we have blood loss. Anesthesia gets discovered in the mid 19th century in the United States. So they now have anesthesia. And of course, once you have anesthesia and the patients are no longer um, writhing on the table, what does that mean for the surgeon? They're able to do bigger and bigger operations. So there's only one problem with doing bigger and bigger operations without understanding antisepsis. You have bigger and bigger infections, infections. after the bigger operation. So, so yes, they were doing these amazing operations. The patients aren't moving. The patient says, thank you. Thank you, uh, you know, doctor. And two weeks later, they're dead from an infection from sepsis. So by the... And his, uh, antisepsis gets discovered by Joseph Lister in the mid 1860s. And it's finally accepted by around the 1890s. There was a lot of controversy about it, but people began using it by the 1890s. So by the beginning of the 20th century, it's not until you see the modern idea of an operation, anatomy, bleeding, anesthesia, and antisepsis. Without those, you couldn't do an effective and safe operation. So that's what happened. And then by the time of World War I, we're into the modern age. Yep. So Ira, you talk about frames of reference and you talk about these fundamentals. Do you think that the, the surgeons beforehand had some sense of this? Well, we need to, I don't need to know where I'm going. I can't see because there's so much blood. Um, I mean, so obviously antisepsis, no, because they didn't really understand um, germ theory and all that. Um, but, but were they, were there people who said, this is really what we need and let's work towards it? Or did, was it that they were just accepting this is the state of the art I, as it is today? I think state of the art before the beginnings of, hum, of understanding human anatomy was what I would call sl slash and dash. Make the slash and dash and get out of town. Um, that is what happened. Did they understand that they needed to understand better? I can't answer that. I mean, clearly, the op you, know, you can see all the reports they're horrible. Oh, the patient died two weeks later. The patient died three weeks later. I, you know, how many times can you see the patient dying from a, what we, you and I would call a simple operation? So I would suspect that there were individuals out there who probably wanted to understand better, but they had no idea. You know, it needed anesthesia. And truthfully, even more than anesthesia, needed antisepsis. Because like I said, bleeding, um, anatomy, and anesthesia, you could do bigger operations, but the patients were dying from the bigger operations. And so that, that's really what happened. And, and for all the limitations and people recognized their patients were dying or they couldn't do certain things. Nevertheless, there was resistance to every innovation, particularly Lister and also to uh, anesthesia. Yes. Was that was that just the recalcitrant? I mean, surgeons, uh, as a former surgeon, notorious to uh, notoriously resistant to change. No, this is how I've always done it. Is that part of it, or was there something else underlying it? I think the surgeon's personality is one that is, um, you know, they deal with. Um, they don't like dealing with change. They know how to do things the way that they've been taught, and so when all of a sudden you introduce this new concept, I mean, it's hard to imagine that anesthesia that takes away pain from patients. There were surgeons and other individuals, and it wasn't just surgeons, who refused to use it. They, they, they refused to use it. No, why, why, why won't you use it? What, what's going on here? Well, you know, 
It's important that the uh, patient rides on the table because it provides energy that they're going to need for after the operation. <laughs> well, <laughs> but, but this is what the thinking was. Now, let me tell you another story. I'll tell you about, about antisepsis. Yeah, it's and like a dad is, saying, oh, the pregnancy's not, the birth's not so bad, you know, it doesn't look bad right. from my vantage point. <laughs> right. So here, here's a fast, well, not fast, but here's a story about antisepsis. So antisepsis is founded by Lister. Now, Joseph Lister was an English surgeon. We're talking, um, he began doing research on it in the 1860s. He died just after the turn of the century. So there's this gentleman by the name of Pasteur. We all know pasteurization, everything. And Pasteur is doing research on wine fermentation. And Pasteur discovers that wine fermentation is being done by these little microbes that he sees underneath a microscope. And he says, there's another form of life out there. Now, of course, can you imagine if today somebody told us there's another uh, you know, fifth dimension of life that exists with us all around, but we don't realize where it is. And these people are walking around us all the time. We don't see them, they don't see us, but they exist. Well, so Pasteur, says, way to look at things, it. Pasteur says these things called bacteria, they exist and maybe they're harmful. Okay. It's a good idea. Lister takes it one step further and says, you know, Pasteur might have something here. It might very well be that these bacteria that you can see underneath the microscope are causing these wound infections with pus pouring out of wounds. Originally, surgeons were led to believe, and when I say originally, we're talking for two, 3,000 years, that pus was good. They wanted pus to come out of wounds is they thought that it was old blood and the blood was uh, being let out of the body. They had no understanding of bacteria. So Lister says, no, th these bacteria are causing this. So what should we do about it? So in around the 1870s, Lister says, it's very simple. You need to wash your hands. We need to prevent these bacteria that are in the air, that are on all surfaces from entering a wound and the patients would do better. So what happens? No one believes him. So he goes on a bunch of evangelistic tours in Europe and through the Germanic states, mostly in Italy, France, they believe him. England and America, even though he's English, no, they're not gonna believe him. So let's go fast forward to 1876. So the Americans are adamant that they don't want antisepsis. It's a ridiculous, stupid idea. It causes too many problems and I'm not gonna do it. I can give you all the quotes, but we don't have time, but there are just many quotes. The Americans are having a big conference, big medical conference, 1876, 100th anniversary of the United States. It's being held in Philadelphia, in Fairmount Park, if you know Philadelphia. And they decide to have, as part of this um, World's Fair, a medical conference. So who do they invite? Joseph Lister. He's gonna be the keynote speaker about his new discovery and whatever. So Lister accepts, he comes to America, and I wrote about it in the book. He goes up the Hudson Valley, up to Canada before he goes to Philadelphia. He travels all around, discovers America. He loves it. Lister is a big sightseer. He enjoys going sightseeing. So he goes down to Philadelphia. This is September of 1876. He gives a four-hour talk about antisepsis. He shows his devices, the spray that you have to spray into the atmosphere to prevent these bacteria. It's called carbolic acid. It was one of the earliest antiseptic solutions, no longer used. And he says, you really have got to do this stuff. You got to wipe your hands. You got to wash your hands. So he finishes four and a half hours. And what happens? The Americans tell him he's crazy. One guy writes that this guy Lister has a grasshopper in his head. That's the actual quote. His head is filled with grasshoppers. And uh, various Americans squib. Squib Pharmaceuticals. He says, this is ridiculous. <laughs> the the um, founder of Squib. And the list goes on and on. And there's one surgeon in there. His name is Frank Hamilton, who says, you know, no Americans believe anything that you say, and we're not going to listen to it and just forget about it. So Lister gives his talk. He then spends about another month in the United States touring um, the country. He's the first uh, celebrity, medical celebrity, to take a train going across the United States from the East Coast to the West Coast and back. He does that, he gives a lecture at Harvard on his return. 
He lectures in New York City and he goes back to England. All right, it's 1876. The Americans are in a quandary. Should we listen to him? Should we not listen to him? What should we do? Should we not do? So they decide that they have no idea. No one knows what's right and what's wrong. They don't know whether antisepsis should be applied or shouldn't. So we go forward five years. And this is the sad story. His name is James Garfield. He is a president of the United States. He is inaugurated in 1881 in March. And um, in July, on July 4th, July 3rd, he's going to go to his college reunion. He went to Williams College in Massachusetts. He's going to go to his college reunion, and he's going to go with his wife and kids to a tour of New England, etc. So this man's president of the United States. So what happens? Now, remember, Lister had been here five years before. Uh, an assassin by the name of Charles Guiteau follows Garfield into a train station in Washington, D.C., walks out of the shadows of a room, takes out a derringer, and shoots Garfield twice. He nicks his arm, and the other bullet hits him in his back. So, of course, the president of the United States is shot. He's lying on the ground. He's vomiting. He's bleeding. No one knows what to do, but there's obviously one thing they have to do. They got to call a surgeon. They have to call a doctor. So they start calling doctors. <coughs> now, I just want to paint this picture for you because this is the important part. In the 1880s, 1890s, America was a filthy country. Its streets, its streets were filled with what? Horse manure. Mm -hmm. To give you an example, in 1890, one and a half million people lived in New York City. New York City also had 170,000 horses. These horses were their main means of transportation. <coughs> so you can think about it. The numbers are that 4 million pounds of manure were deposited in New York City streets each day. Not over the course of a year, but each day. And in fact, that what Americans and Europeans used to call mud in their cities was basically nothing more than horse manure and animal manure. Four-fifths of it was just pure um, manure. So, surgeon comes up to take care of Garfield. He's, you know, Obviously, everybody's anxious and they're afraid. The surgeon comes up on his horse. He's riding his horse or he's riding a carriage. The horse has reins. The carriage has reins. Where are the reins half the time? They're on the ground. They're wherever. So the surgeon has used the reins. The reins have horse manure all over them. Surgeon has horse manure on his hands. All the bacteria. So the first surgeon comes into the room, says, hey, I know what I'm doing. So what happens? He takes his finger that's filled with horse manure and sticks it down the bullet hole in the president's back. Obviously not a fan of Lister or attended none of his conferences. No, no. And why was that? Because these were all older men. The younger people, the divide in the sand in America relative to Lister tended to be younger and older. So, of course, the younger surgeons are not going to be asked to treat the president of the United States. They got all the older surgeons. Over the course of 80 days, and this is all fact, it's all been verified, they think approximately 20 surgeons came in and stuck their hands down the various holes that were now growing because of an abscess in President Garfield. Amongst the surgeons was this guy, Frank Hamilton, who had been at the at the conference five years ago, he was a very uh, important and influential American surgeon. They invite him from New York to come see the president. And this was the man who said, Lister, uh, I don't believe anything you say. Well, he still continued not to believe anything that Lister said. He puts his hand down the president and eventually Garfield, 80 days later in September, dies. So what does he die from? He dies from abscesses that formed all over his body because they had no ability to treat the abscess with antibiotics, they hadn't been discovered, nor could they really operate on because they were deep inside his body. So man dies, 1881 in September, and then everything breaks out in America relative to um, antisepsis. The surgeons are fighting. The younger ones said to the older ones, hey, 
We told you, you have to wash your hands. You have to spray this carbolic acid all over the wound. You can't just go ahead and stick your fingers, your dirty, grubby, grimy fingers down into patients without washing them, including your instruments. So to make a very long story short, you have a dead president and the assassin at the trial says, and this quote, it's, you know, it's not really my like, fault. <laughs> it's what I call an SBT, sad but true. This is a sad but true quote. He says, gentlemen, this is to the jury. Of course, he was convicted and later was hung, but, and he was mentally ill, this guy. But he says, gentlemen, I did not kill the president. The doctors killed the president. That Hold is the Hold on a second, Eric. And I know you wrote a book about this, so you've thought a lot about yes. Garfield. Um, there was a leap here. So he dies 80 days later. And all of a sudden, we realize, was there well, an autopsy done? What, what happened exactly that changed the, the perception of what? Oh, and so I, I forgot to add that part into the story. So at autopsy, it ends up that the bullet injury that he had was nothing more than a bullet lodged in a muscle in his back. So it had not affected any major organ. In today's world, and I wrote about it, not in this book, but in my other book, James Garfield, in today's world, he would have been out of the hospital probably in a day or two. Right. He would have been followed in the White House, and that would have been the end of the discussion. Well, even they back then, that was the Wild West, right? There's people walking around, probably bullets lodged in different parts. Oh, of, of course. The they didn't have x-rays. X-rays did not come out to 1896. Yeah. They didn't have MRIs and CAT scans and other things. They didn't have antibiotics to treat it. Just look at Reagan. I mean, Reagan has open chest surgery, and I think he's back in the White House in eight days, 10 days, whatever, and yeah. he does fine. So this man died from a bullet that went into his back, gets lodged in a muscle in his back because it's not a high-velocity gun that shot him, and he dies because he's had manure bacteria introduced into his body by the 20 surgeons. But let me again state frames of reference. At the time, the doctors who were doing this thought what? They were doing state-of-the-art surgical care. So um, one of the things, because we, we've seen innovations and we could obviously keep telling stories on up to today and tomorrow in the future, um, mm -hmm. just about everything has had some resistance, but it seems like um, in surgery, at least, people are, are really looking forward to new innovations. Maybe not the older surgeons, but the younger, younger surgeons coming out and saying, what else can we do? There must be more we can do. Why is that changed? Why, why is it that Lister could not get people to understand that you had to wash your hands? And now people are saying, well, why can't we use robots? And why can't we use nanotechnology and these, these micro beads and things like that? I think it's like anything else, meaning that, listen, the, the, the progress in surgery is not linear. It just, it's not just a line that keeps going up. There are fits and starts and bumps and bad things and good things, but there's progress. Progress continues. We live in a much different world today, witnessed by what's going on with social media and everything. And we know about what's going on, you know, halfway across the world, two seconds later. Yeah. So I think that younger people, younger generation than me, that they are just used to this new technology. They expect, I, I obviously did not grow up with this technology. They expect that this technology is going to be able to resolve many, many issues relative to surgery and the treatment of patients. Is that correct? I think that there is some um, truth in there that it is going to be able to solve things. We might not be there now, meaning robots and artificial intelligence. But like I said, 200 years from now, they're going to look back and say what they were doing was, I don't want to use the word barbaric, but it, it shouldn't have yeah. been done. A primitive, at least, yeah. Yes. So the other thing that we didn't discuss was, and I'm sort of asking the question of myself, is why did I write the book? That was coming here. <laughs> oh, okay. That's fine. Uh, so let me explain why did I write this book? Well, you know, this book was meant to be comprehensive and a revelatory history. It was meant to be educational, entertaining. So how did this book come about? It's very simple. All my previous books, this is my eighth book already, were discrete ideas. I came up with the idea. I wrote about it 
book gets published, it's out there in the world. This book was not that. This book took four decades, five decades of me of going to medical school, of surgical training, of being in practice and trying to understand, well, what did I understand? I understand what I call two levels. The first was patience. Now, surgeons might not agree with me, but again, this is my, um, this is what I, I noted. I was both dismayed and perplexed by the fact that patients would come in to see surgeons, that would be me or other surgeons, and they really had minimal understanding of the training that a surgeon went through. Not only do they have minimal idea about the training that a surgeon went to, they didn't understand licensure. They didn't understand board certification. What does all that mean in the world? Um, so I wanted to explain that in a way that the lay individual could understand it. Secondly, and perhaps even for me, more dismaying and perplexing was my dealing with my colleagues relative to medical and surgical history. I would give lectures. This again is over a course of 40 years. And I would ask just simple questions of a surgical audience. When was anesthesia founded? They couldn't answer it. They, they, they couldn't even forget about the exact year. They couldn't even get the century correct. But not only that, I would ask an orthopedic surgeon. Now, I don't know if Keith can answer, but if I ask him, when was the orthopedic board of surgery founded and when was it started? I don't know if he knows the answer to that. Um, Keith, I'm not here. Okay. I don't want to, I don't want to put all you guys on the spot, but having said that, I thought that surgeons needed to understand how their, how their profession <coughs> related to society and through um, board certification. What does that mean? When did it start? How, if, how was it born? Um, so those are the two reasons I wrote this book. Yeah. As, as one of my questions at the end here, um, like Cushing, for example, I mean, everybody knows his name in surgery. They see instruments named after him. I didn't know he yes. won the Pulitzer Prize. I had no oh, idea, yeah. right? So when you're talking to other colleagues, I mean, do you, I mean, if you were to poll most of them, I mean, do you think most of them have at least some grounding, at least in their own specialty? Or do you think most are pretty ignorant? And, and why? Is it just a time constraint, especially during residency? Is it, is it <clears> well, I mean, there are time constraints, obviously. And history is always a difficult subject. I'd say, again, based on my own um, background, that surgeons always talk about history. If they're in the middle of doing an operation, oh, yeah, you know, anesthesia, that's when it started. Now, mo many of the um, stories they tell are not true. They have wrong dates, wrong time, wrong individuals. And I try to correct that with all my writings. Um, so it, I don't think it's the most favorite topic of surgeons to discuss. Conversely, I think it's a topic that is frequently discussed. He just said, Mark uh, Ravage, we discussed him before the interview started. Mark Ravage in Pittsburgh would bring his medical students in and they would talk about surgical history. So there are surgeons who discuss surgical history and I'm sure that that continues today, but I don't think they have an understanding of it the way that I look at it, meaning the socioeconomics. It's, I, listen, there's a word. I call it the gestalt of surgery. I wanted to understand the gestalt of surgery. I was never interested in being the most technically adept surgeon who could do every operation there that a general surgeon does, and that's all that they did. I was interested in being obviously a good surgeon, but I wanted to understand what make surgeons. What are their whys and wherefores? What is the politics that surrounds surgery? Why do surgeons make decisions? So eventually I, you know, although I was boarded in general surgery, I limited my practice for many years just to hernias. Partial, and I wrote about this in the book, was because I wanted to have time to write. Hernias were an elective operation. And for me, I needed that time to be able to write. These books that I write take time. This book took five years. Empire of the Scalpel took five years to write. My other books equally took time. And so I thought that for me, I needed to be trained as a surgeon if I was going to talk about the history of surgery. I needed to do surgery, but I didn't need to be the most technically adept and well-known surgeon in the world. I needed to be a good surgeon, but I needed also to understand history. So that's how I became a surgeon slash historian. Well, on that, I mean, you didn't 
received the same training as a PhD student in history, right? Who's, who's writing papers and, you know, there's a different career track for that. And I'm curious, you know, as you were getting your writing career going as well, were there people that you reached out to conversations you had, you know, who, who helped you get better so, as a writer and as a researcher and historian? So, uh, you know, you said PhD. I don't know if you realize, but I have a PhD. I do. I have an MD in public PhD. health, right? Yes, I have a doctorate in public health in addition to my MD. And I, and I got my doctorate in public health at Johns Hopkins when I was doing my surgical training. My, my doctorate in public health was on medical economics. It was on the gestalt of surgery. I, in fact, my thesis, which I wrote you know, like 45 years ago, whatever it was, was on why do surgeons operate and rates of surgery in the United States? How many operations were being done? That was my thesis. I sort of... Um, then took that knowledge and worked more and more into history. Um, my history did not come about from any formal training. I wrote in the book that I never took a history course in college. And I, until today, I've never had a true um, um, background in how to do historical research. Everything that I've done is self-taught. Were there surgeons who um, helped me? I would like to say, yes, there were, but the truth is, there were there's there are virtually no surgeons who are really historians because it's a tough field. You know, it's tough to say I'm going to go through seven years of surgical training and then sort of sacrifice that surgical training to then just write history. Very often there's a new article I just read in a journal about a uh, modern surgical association. I just got it yesterday in the mail. Um, and they write about this surgical organization, about the economics, the politics. I haven't read the article yet, but I saw the title. It sounded interesting. So I looked up who wrote the article. It was a PhD in um, history. Now, I don't have a problem. I, I wrote it in my book that I'm in awe of many of the writings that a PhD in history is able to do relative to surgery. But for me, there's this inside feeling that it's just not the same as me who was in an operating room, who had a scalpel in my hand and was cutting into another human being's flesh. It's just different. Now, whether you accept that or not, that's fine. We're allowed to agree to disagree. Um, but I think that my writing as a surgeon slash historian is foundationally very different than somebody who has never gone through surgical training. And truthfully, I don't even know, I, I can't think of how many, I can't really think of other surgeons out there today who write as much history as I do. All surgeons wanna write history, they write an article or whatever, but I don't think they spend their time writing professionally. I've been very lucky. I have agents, you know, literary agents who take care of me. Um, I've been obviously, for, you know, in this book and others in the New York Times book review. So I, I've been fortunate being able to do that. I do not know of any other surgeons who are quite, um, who are doing quite what I'm doing. Let's flip the statement around. Um, you say that uh, your writing is different because you were a surgeon. Was your surgery different because of your background in history? And would you <clears throat> encourage people to, to, I mean, obviously you encourage people to read this book, but to read as much as they can about history, to get that framework, to get that con context? I think the study of history certainly in, for a profession, be it medicine or law, accounting, whatever, engineering, doesn't matter, that it provides a pathway both um, for today and into the future. So I think that understanding history is very, very important. It, it gives you uh, a depth of feeling that is um, important to the field. And it, uh, for me, it becomes even more important when I'm actually part of that field being a surgeon. Um, I can't, I, I can't phrase it any other way. I just think, I thought it was important for me to, if I'm gonna write about surgery, surgical history and medical history, I needed to have boards in surgery. I needed to do the training because I knew that somebody would look at me, Dr. Mankin would look at me and say, come on, you, you never even stepped into an operating room and you're telling me about what it is to be in an operating room. So I thought it was important for me to be able to do that, which is what I did. Well, it, 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 it fuels your passion for it too. I mean, that's, uh, that, that's, yeah. that, that counts. I mean, 
You have to well, be you know, it's, it's 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 the D's of the world: discipline, dedication, devotion, whatever. You need to have that to be able to do what I've done for you know twenty years now of professional writing. Well, man, we are uh, at the end of the hour here. I have a bunch more questions. I want to talk about the first heart transplant and all you know, <laughs> President Johnson, all sorts of stuff. But uh, that's what your book's for. So you know, I highly recommend people you know take a look. Well, I hope um, people enjoy it. And Keith, did you have any more questions? No, no, it's great. So um, what we'll do is, uh, as we always do, put links up to the book, to your websites and, and, and other work on, on the website. Is there anything you'd like to share with, with the listeners, point them where to find your work, your books? Before we, well, the books are online. You know, all my books are online. You can just go to Amazon and you can find all my books. Some of them are even are out of print now. You might have to go to old book dealers to find some of the um, books. Um, no, I think the important thing is to understand that <clears throat> what I'm doing is a little bit different than what other surgeons have done. Or other surgeons can claim to be historians, but not to the level or not to the depth that I've been doing it. I just, I enjoy it, you know, and I enjoyed being a surgeon. I did, what, 10,000 hernia operations. It's enough. You know, I don't need to, do, I don't need to do anymore. Um, so yes, this, this has been my passion throughout my life. And this is just another book on the history of medicine. In this case, the history of surgery. Well, thanks for writing it. Thanks for bringing it in the world. I, I really enjoyed reading it and, um, it plugged a lot of gaps that I had, um, but it was very enjoyable to read too. I, I love the story. So, well, that's good. That's, that's, you know, I always write, I always tell people that I do, I call it E squared, E squared meaning that a book should be both educational and entertaining. If a book is not educational, then, you know, it serves really very little purpose. But at the same time, it has to be entertaining. Now, in the academic world, journal articles are educational. They're not entertaining. <laughs> Academics, academicians don't like to have entertaining writing in their medical journals. I can assure you of that. Um, so for me, it's important that my books that are done by a publisher like Scribner is both educational, but at the same time entertaining. I want people to be able to say that Empire of the Scalpel is a page turner, that they can't re wait to read the next page. Well, it's, it's you know, it's also a, a service in a way, right? I mean, there's so many of these people and so many stories that move medicine forward. And, and there's a lot of people that never really got credit in their own lives for what they did. You know, they were shouted down and I was just thinking about Mendel, you know, his pea plants and he, you know, he wasn't taken seriously at the time, but what a right. major leap that was. And there's right. so I many think, of these, it, but you putting them down in words, you know, it, it keeps their, their story alive. So it's not lost to history. I think it matters. Listen, I could write this book, um, the same book, but using different stories to get the, to, to, to oh, reach it. the same conclusion. Right. You know, the, the stories are out there. They're fascinating. But, uh, you know, you have to have a sharp editorial pen or a sharp author's pen. There's just so much you can go on. Otherwise, this book won't be, you know, 400 pages. It'll be 400 volumes. That's right. Well, and then we'll add the questions to the board exams, too. People love that. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> they, we, so, we always love that. Like They asked me that. Right. Did they that, really? story, that story is in the book. Right? <clears throat> that, that is an absolute true story. It was my last exam for my oral part of the boards. And the man, I mean, I don't know who the surgeon was. I mean, I'm a young pup. I'm, oh, he asked know, me the question. I remember this. Yeah. And he says to me, and I don't think he even knew that I, I already had written some history articles. I don't think he knew who I was or I had written anything. And he asked me who discovered heparin. And I just looked the man right in the eyes and gave him the answer, you know, which was a, a, a medical student at Johns Hopkins back at the turn of the century. And I remember the surgeon looked at me and said, how did you know that answer? And I just said something, oh, I'm interested in history. And he just turned around and that, that severe stern face that all the examiners have came back on him and he says, good luck, Dr. Rutko with your career. That was the end of the interview. <laughs> but I'll never forget when he asked me that question. Yeah. Uh, he's probably one of your loyal readers today. You just don't know. Yeah. Um, possibly, hopefully, yeah. if yeah. he's still alive. They were, they were, this is back in 1980. So that's 40 years ago. And they were not youngsters back then. <laughs> true. True. Well, we got to let you get going. I know you had, you said earlier, you yes, had an appointment coming up. Surgeon. That's right. <laughs> go see a surgeon yourself. 
And, um, but Ira, thanks for coming on. Um, again, My really enjoyed the book, but enjoyed talking with you today too. You guys were great. I appreciate it. Let me know whatever else I, you need from me or I can do. And I we look will. forward to uh, seeing the thing when it comes on. Excellent. Well, um, everyone, again, uh, this is Dr. Ira Retko. His book is Empire of the Scalpel. It's a, it's a great book. Definitely recommend it. And wherever, whenever you're listening to us, take care. We'll see you here next time. Thanks for joining us on Peer Spectrum. Please support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at peerspectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at peerspectrum.com.